0: Hello everyone and welcome back to episode number 9 of Immunology and Beyond. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Don Bowdish, who is a professor at the McMaster Immunology Research Center, which is where myself, Anna, and Dom work. A brief background about Dr. Bowdish: she completed her PhD at the University of British Columbia, after which she continued her scientific research by going to Oxford University for her postdoctoral position. After that, she came back to Canada, where she's currently the principal investigator and professor at the McMaster Immunology Research Center, where she's focusing in and studying the relationship between aging and immune system, which play a huge role in the current COVID-19 pandemic, and she's highly involved in research within that area. But without spoiling too much, I would like to introduce Dr. Don Boudish. kind of start the episode off we just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself kind of where you started your research career and if you can start from you know when you were at the University of Guelph you're doing your bachelor's research and then kind of where you are now.
1: Sure well congratulations first of all on your second season that's really exciting and congratulations on the huge following you guys are getting it's wonderful to, to see your podcast take off. So my history is basically, I was born in Hamilton. I grew up on the mountain. And my first exposure to science was when I was in high school. I actually did a co-op at Mac. So I used to take the bus down every afternoon for a semester. And I used to come and work in the uh, blue section of the hospital in the pharmacology lab. And that's sort of where I decided that science was the life for me. It was such a great experience. And uh, I worked with this postdoc and I thought she just had this impossibly glamorous life. You know, she was Traveling all over the world to present her work, having these impassioned arguments about science with her boss. And I thought, any job where you can take coffee breaks whenever you want, have passionate arguments and disagreements and travel, that's the job for me. So that's sort of what I got the bug that this might be a career I wanted, but I didn't really have the field sorted out. So then I went to Guelph for my undergraduate degree. And and in the first week, I think it might have even been my first lecture, there was this uh, microbiology course I was taking. And there was this professor named Norman Gibbons, and he just did these incredible lectures of just works of art about how microbiology and infectious disease influenced art, science and famous people. And, and he told these wonderful stories about how infectious disease sort of shaped uh, modern history, modern art, modern uh, the world we live in. And so that really got me started on infectious disease as a career and also got me super interested in the idea of evolution as being one of the major drivers of the host response and then the bacterial or the viral response. And so that combination was just really intoxicating. And I had so many incredible mentors who have since become colleagues. Um, Lori Burrow was in the Department of Biochemistry. She was the postdoc of supervising me when I was an undergraduate student at Well. And so she taught me everything I knew about the lab, and I was totally hopeless, but she was very understanding, and forgiving, and I only remember her sort of losing it at me once, which is pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so then from there I went on to did my PhD at UBC, and then my postdoctoral training.
0: Seeing your trajectory, you know you're very well known. Well, you're known for various things, but one of them is your knowledge in macrophage biology and its involvement in various pathologies. But starting from your BSc, you didn't quite start with macrophage research, right? So, going to your PhD, you kind of started looking into things related to innate immunity and macrophages. What was it that kind of guided you to do your PhD focus within that area of immunology?
1: Yes, well, uh, as with so many things in science, a little bit of chance, really. So I had done my undergraduate in a microbiology lab, and I had worked on the bacteria Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And when I went and did my PhD, I had kind of showed up in the lab and thought I'd be doing something similar, sort of on the more microbiology side. But my supervisor at the time said, no, um, I've got this other project I want you to work on. It's on these sort of natural antibiotics our body makes, and we think that they modulate and change the innate immune system. And so I think you should work on that. And of course, you know, I was just so excited to be there. And that really got me started on looking at the host side of things and thinking about innate immunity in particular. And so that's when I learned how to take blood and became a little phlebotomist and took blood from people to understand how cytokine production and motility and things like that. And innate immune cells, specifically monocytes at the time and that was what sort of got me on the host side of things and then i went to do my postdoc and you know monocytes are sort of like baby macrophages so it was sort from of a natural lead-in but i went to one of the leading macrophage biology lab dr simon gordon in oxford and to see a macrophage is to love a macrophage you have to do is slip under the microscope once and you're hooked so it became a bit of a passion and an obsession for me and and in truth, you know, my Twitter handle is Ms. Macrophage but that's sort of a homage to my postdoctoral supervisor because he had this reputation of being called Mr. Macrophage. There were all sorts of great stories about him wandering around Oxford, you know, going and getting his hair cut or just, you know, living life. And then people hearing stories about this guy who was talking to this immune system called a macrophage. And, and, and so he was sort of known universally as Mr. Macrophage around Oxford. And so my, my Twitter handle is a bit of a homage to his, uh, his uh, passion for macrophages.
0: That's, that's, that's very cool. Now we know the origin of, of Ms. Macrophage.
1: So. <laughs> I also uh, thought Dr. Macrophage is a bit pretentious, so I like Ms. Macrophage. Alliteration, less pretentious. You know, the combination is a bit of a win.
0: Yeah, for sure. Just to go a little um, more detail, not not too much, but if you could just give us a little bit of uh, background on, on what was like the main findings of your PhD thesis when you were looking at the antibacterial peptide AL thirty seven and and kind of why were you guys looking at that and what did you find and why was that impactful?
1: It was a wonderful opportunity in my PhD because my supervisor had some ideas, but he also gave me a lot of leeway. So there was the post the PhD student who came before me. I just started this inkling that maybe these antimicrobial peptides, which everyone else was treating as if they would be the next antibiotic. They are kind of interesting because they kill broad classes of bacteria and it's a little bit harder to develop resistance. And the idea at the time was these would be the next antibiotics to save us all. But the PhD before me had just gotten an inkling that maybe part of what they do was actually change some of the innate immune response. And so that's sort of an indirect way of combating um, infections. And so she'd sort of set the rough stage for this. And when I came in, I um, was able to do, uh, to expand on that a little bit more and found that there were specific signaling pathways that they activated in the host cell and they seemed to affect cytokines and chemokines uh, production quite a bit. And so as a consequence, this sort of opened up this, this new avenue of research where maybe instead of calling them antimicrobial peptides, we should call them host defense peptides. Because in addition to this direct antimicrobial activity, they had a sort of broader immunomodulatory activity. And so that's what I worked on very passionately.
0: One question that I had was, well, how come you chose UBC as your center base? Was it because of the research that was going on in that area? Or was there other things that kind of led you down to the West Coast of Canada?
1: Well, it's a little bit of a funny story. Um, My undergraduate thesis supervisor was this guy named Joseph Lamb. And we tell the story in two very different ways. He and I have remained close over the years. So when I was finishing my undergrad and thinking about where to go next, I was looking at Bob Hancock, my PhD supervisor, because he was a lead in sort of pseudomonas originosa, uh, cystic fibrosis uh, research. and, And that's sort of what I was doing in my undergraduate degree. He was also the supervisor of my Joe Lamb. So there was a little bit of a family history. It was basically going to my academic grandparent. And I remember the story as me saying, you know, Joe, I think I'd like to apply to Bob Hancock's life. I remember him saying, oh, Bob only takes the best students. And I remember that being like, he won't take you because he only takes the best students. So that made me want to apply. And so I did. Now, Joe remembers it completely differently. Joe remembers it as him saying, you should go there because Bob only takes the best students and you'd be a good, you'd be a good fit for that lab. And apparently he did give me a glowing reference, which is why I got into to Bob's lab to begin with. But you know, my memory of that is it being like a challenge, like I'd never get in. And his memory is being like encouragement that I should totally go. So, uh, who is right? Who's wrong? I'm not exactly sure.
0: It's funny that you tell me that story, uh, because when I was doing research to prepare for the interview, I looked up Dr. Hancock, and I think Dr. Gordon, who's your Oxford supervisor, and when you go to their Wikipedia page, they said notable students, and for both of them, it says Don Bowdish. So, oh,
1: bless. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: you, you're definitely quoted. I don't know who wrote it there, but you're definitely seen as, uh, as a notable student to come out of both of those labs. So oh, that's so lovely. So I think uh, now we're probably going to transfer into kind of discussing your postdoc and Anna's going to be the one asking you questions about that.
2: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing about your experiences during your PhD. And like Eddie said, we're just going to pivot a little bit more towards your postdoc experience. So I guess our first question is what led you to go to Oxford University? That's kind of in line with the previous question. Was it more of the lab? Or did you want to experience research out of Canada? What were the main factors?
1: So uh, the truth of the matter is there were a couple factors, choice and chance being one of them. But one of the things, by the end of my PhD, I really had concluded that I really wanted to run my own lab one day. And so being a scientist, uh, this required a little bit of research. And one of the things that was also becoming apparent to me was that there weren't as many women who would get these sorts of jobs as there were men. And so one of my questions was why, why, why don't women get these positions? And one of the answers was is international experience is considered a big asset, but oftentimes women, you know, by this time, often have partners or husbands or family ties or whatever and whatnot, and are less likely to do a postdoc internationally. So uh, my husband been very much looking forward to me finishing the PhD and moving back to Ontario to be closer to both our families. That was sort of his. Uh, goal at the time. And I, I suggested that perhaps we should go overseas because that would be really important. And at the time, I, you know, I've always loved Europe and I don't speak French well, but I thought maybe France, you know, there's lots of good labs in Germany. There's a one in the Netherlands I was looking at. And his only criteria was English speaking. So that sort of left us with English speaking countries. There was actually a live in Australia I was quite interested in, but we really felt that that was pretty far away. And I happened to be going to a conference in Germany, so what I did is I flew to England and I stopped there and I interviewed with uh, maybe three or four or five different labs that I thought looked kind of interesting. Now, Simon Gordon had been the sabbatical supervisor of one of my mentors. His name's David Spirit. He's a pediatric and infectious disease specialist at UBC, and I'd done sort of a project co-supervised by uh, him and Bob uh, as part of my lab. And he had done a sabbatical with Simon Gordon. So you can see we're all related in science, right? And so he had really thought that I should go to Simon's lab and, and, you know, Oxford is a pretty impressive place. If you ever get a chance to go, I suggest you go just to look around at the buildings and things like that. So I met Simon and I, I certainly was agnostic at that point about where I would go. Oh, and this, I suppose I should. Uh, prefaces by saying this is classical boutish. I, you know, call people up and say, hi, I'd like to come give a presentation at your lab meeting and I'd like to come meet you and things like that. So I, I never waited for a position to appear to apply to. I always sort of invited myself over to people's labs to give talks and that's been a feature of my career. The joke my husband used to say is we couldn't go on vacation without me giving a talk because no matter where we were, I feel like I know somebody who knew somebody in that city and I'd be like, hi, I'd like to come give a talk for your institute. So I met Simon and, uh, you know, I'd been asking all my, my friends and the postdocs and, that and things like that about like, what sort of questions should I ask? What sort of things should I, you know, be savvy about? And they'd given me a list of questions, one of which was, you know, do you have this, and that, and the other equipment? Do you have, you know, this sort of thing? And I remember, uh, distinctly asking Simon Gordon saying, hi, you know, I'm really interested in doing whatever, something you needed some piece of equipment for and would this be available? And he said, my dear girl, if you can dream it, we can do it here at the Dunn School of Pathology. And I just loved that attitude of, if you can dream it, we can do it. You know, there's no, gonna be no obstacles to getting things done. And Simon Gordon was just the most collaborative, wonderful, exciting person to work with. And so it was an easy decision.
2: Okay, thank you for sharing your stories. I was gonna, I have two questions. I was going to ask, do you think that you mentioned that one of the main factors affecting women being professors was the lack of international experience? Do you think this still holds true today or has there been a shift and is that less of a factor?
1: Well, I think, you know, the biggest shift from when I was, you know, in 2005 was when I was looking for my postdoctoral experience in 2009. I think, honestly, the biggest shift is we are not just thinking about women anymore. We're thinking about underrepresented groups in general. And so there are actually different obstacles, I think, for different underrepresented groups, you know. So for some people, well, let's go as an example, let's say white women like myself. So historically, yes, there weren't nearly as many women. And certainly when I was making these decisions, which I've shared with you, there were not very many women. We look at institutions now, and there still aren't enough women. But if we break that down to white and non-white women, white women aren't doing terribly. You know, we're not doing horribly. But other women are not as well represented. But there are different reasons for that. So when I was young, people used to always talk about the leaky pipeline. The leaky pipeline. And that may or may not be true. But the fact of the matter is there are more women at the PhD level than men in many fields. And, you know, that acclimatized or that trickling out of the pipeline comes fairly late. But for other women, for black women, for indigenous women, they're not entering, you know, so there's no pipeline because there's not enough women at the very entry point. And so I think one of the major differences is we now have a much more sophisticated understanding of where these obstacles for promotion are. You know, for indigenous and black women, it's, they don't ever enter the sciences. We've also learned some stuff about LGBTQ youth, you know. Interestingly, fewer of them are likely to do undergraduate research projects. But women who identify as queer end up being, if they do have that experience, more likely enter- to enter the science pipeline and men are less likely after they have that undergraduate experience. So to me, I think we need to take a more sophisticated lens to looking at individual groups because everyone's got their own story and their challenges. And I think it would be unfair to make inferences from you know the experiences of white women to all underrepresented sciences.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think there should be more research being done on these different obstacles that you talk about. I know that Dr. Iwasaki from Yale has done some commentaries on that point. So yeah, I think that's a very good point. And then my second question was, what is one of your main advices to a postdoc looking for a position? What's something that you would tell them based on your experience that would really make them stand out? Um, Maybe it's your approach, taking a similar approach of calling, not being afraid to get into contact with these different universities or research institutes, but what would be one of your main top advice?
1: Well, you know, I always hesitate about giving advice because I can tell you what worked for me, but I, I they you know, the plural antidote is not that data. So just because it worked for me doesn't mean it's the right approach for everyone, but I would definitely say having a broad professional network. It's amazing how those relationships come back to you over the course of your life. So I already mentioned how I'm still dear friends with my undergraduate thesis supervisor, and he actually made some of the introductions that ended up getting me helping me get a foot in the door at McMaster here and getting interviewed. So be nice to your undergraduate thesis supervisor, I suppose, is probably not terrible advice. But um, a lot of science, as you've heard from my stories, is all about relationship. Postdoc supervisor was the sabbatical supervisor or someone else I know. You know, my PhD supervisor, and my undergraduate supervisor. So I think the importance of having a professional network is probably something that's pretty generalizable. And you start that during your your PhD by going to conferences, presenting, never say no to giving a talk and find opportunities to speak because your peers are one day going to be your colleagues. You know, some of the people who are your lab mates now will one day be people who work in the agencies that fund us and all those connections will be important in the future. So I, like I said, I invite myself to give talks all the time, less so now because I'm so well-known I get invited to give talks, but in, you know, whenever I would be holidaying. So as a consequence, you know, people knew who I was, people have always known who I was. And one of the things when I came to Mac, I switched my career focus. And that was kind of a bit of a shock because I didn't know anybody in that field. That was one place I'd never been before. So I had to make a really concerted effort to go into those conferences and be, people, you know, making connections uh, and meeting a whole group of people. So I I think it is fairly universalizable that you need to have really good communication skills and you have to be able to give a talk that makes people's jaws. And so the best way to get to that point is practice. And you can practice by doing local presentations or regional, talking at friends and colleagues labs and things like that, and just really honing the craft of communication. And I think that universally is something everybody wants.
2: I think that giving a really strong presentation makes a, such a big difference and really can set you apart. I want to talk a little bit more about how was that transition between being a postdoc and then coming back to Merck and Canada and then starting your own lab.
1: Yeah, so again, if I could do everything differently, I'd do it a lot better. So I started my own lab a bit scattershot. I had a lot of different ideas about what I wanted to do and I probably should have been a bit more focused. But one of the reasons I'd come to Merck is we had such a strong TB group, um, and I thought I'd be doing more stuff on tuberculosis. So Zhou Singh, uh, you know, just has this incredible program and, and he was very helpful in getting the first grants for me. But it became very apparent very quickly that, uh, the CHR was not going to fund any TV work for me. I didn't quite have what they thought it took. So fortunately, the, the scavenger receptors are also associated with pneumococcal pneumonia. And pneumococcal pneumonia is very understudied considering the health burden. Pneumonia is the most costly infectious disease um, in Canada, and yet very few people study bacterial pneumonia. So because it works with the scavenger receptors that I was looking at, and because it was a bacteria that's a lot easier to work with, everything's a bit quicker, and I thought the CHR might find something along those lines a little bit more. So I, I had reached out to a connection from my postdoctoral lab who was doing a pneumococcal colonization model named Jeff Weiser. And so husband, baby, and I went down to his lab for a few months and, uh, learned how to do the pneumococcal colonization models and infection models and learned a bit about pneumococcal microbiology. And then I brought that up to that, the model system that my lab was focused on. And from there, because uh, pneumococcal pneumonia is a burden primarily in older adults, it was Intellectually easy, physically very difficult, but intellectually easy transition into looking at ageing.
2: I think that's also a testament of how important collaborations are just in terms of like having other established professors to help with like grant writing and being able to translate these different models that you don't have experience with. I think that's super important and probably helpful to start like sooner rather than later. I guess we also want to talk about how your research has now pivoted to the COVID-19 pandemic. I know you are part of various different grants and so what was your reasoning behind being part of the research going on for COVID-19?
1: Well in truth it uh, wasn't such a huge stretch. I mean by the point we arrived in, in March before we really started writing these grants for COVID, our lab pretty well established it being experts in the aging immune system and respiratory infections. So you put those two things together, you have COVID. And so we, you know, thought right off the bat that we could contribute to various aspects of the the fight against COVID. And of course, my people are older people, so this is very important to to do. So we're involved in a number of projects, but I, I really do want to send my sincere gratitude to the Weston Family Foundation. They had funded us. We just got funding in February. we just gone and presented a proposal to them to understand how the upper respiratory tract microbiome influenced infection risk in older adults. And we just got funded. And, and so I sort of wrote to the family foundation and said, like, COVID's a thing. I think we should do some studies on how the upper respiratory tract microbiome influences COVID. And as well, in a previous funding we got from them, we had uh, a few, a couple hundred uh, people across the each spectrum who had already participated in our study and were going to volunteer for this additional study. So they immediately were able to release uh, a significant chunk of money. So I do have to attribute some of our our ability to mobilize quickly to the fact that they were able to be so flexible with the funding. In that context, that gave us some leeway to create like a seroprevalence cohort for the local region where we can study and see how many people got infected. We're doing a little bit of household transmission and, and, uh, and it allowed us to develop some of the serological and immune assays to look at sort of how the immune system in older adults might change after, after during and after. COVID infection. So we're collaborating, bouncing off of that. We've now have got a couple of collaborations looking at ICU patients to understand how age and frailty and uh, chronic uh, disease and medication influences responses in the context of the ICU. We have our seroprevalence cohort where we have some interesting immunology around pre-existing infections with seasonal coronaviruses, current infections, and it allowed us to develop a bunch of assays that we just got funded to do a large study of long-term care, which will allow us both to understand how infections spread in long-term care, what are the individual and facility-wide risks for how these outbreaks occur, and now we'll be able to monitor vaccination because we really don't know how frail older adults are going to respond to the vaccine and how protective it's going to be in that situation. So we've now got funding from multiple places, but you know it was really having this pool of funds that was released that allowed us to sort of get everything in place. And it just speaks to some of the challenges of trying to pivot one's research program if you don't have any money to do it. So, uh, so that, that list of funds has really led to a lot of new directions, which is very exciting. And of course, we're also doing a spit study, which is a bit of a step away from what I normally do. But this is basically using saliva and rapid testing to look for asymptomatic infections. And we've been partnering with local retirement communities, uh, with the McMaster community and with other community groups and showing that rapid and frequent testing of saliva can help detect asymptomatic infections, get people out of the workplace and keep workplaces safe. So that has been uh, with my colleague, Eric Brown and I, and uh, has been a, a labor of love because I think it's really uh, helped keep our McMaster community safe um, and also some of the retirement communities, who, the local ones and many of these people are my, blood donors, those are the people, those are my people. And so it's really important for me to be able to keep them them safe. That's
2: such a different breadth of work and it's going to be very impactful because, you know, these communities are super high risk. So thank you for all your work on that. And I guess one thing we want to talk about is we know that you're quite involved in knowledge translation within the science community, but also the broader global community, and so we wanted to get your opinion on what is the importance of being able to provide the public with reliable scientific information, um, not only during a pandemic, but also all the time, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I um, I feel a real obligation to give back to the people who gave me. My undergraduate was funded entirely on student loans, so the Canadian taxpayer, they had my back. my Ph.D. was funded entirely by the the generosity of the Canadian taxpayer. My postdoc was again funded by the Canadian taxpayer. The Canadian taxpayer pays my salary and the salary of almost everybody working in my lab. So I have always felt that it is my solemn duty to give back to the Canadian taxpayer for for supporting me and part of my work. However, I also acknowledge that, you know, it's hard and it's hard to ask scientists to be good scientist, we've got to be a good manager, we've got to be a good mentor, we've got to be good at money because we've got all this budgeting, we've got to be a good writing. And to add science communication on top of that, I think is not fair to demand that of everyone. On the other hand, there's also not, you know, I don't really get any credit for doing that. You know, it's not like I can do science communication instead of teaching or instead of doing anything else. So it's really all an extra curtain. So not only is it a tax on my time, but it's, you know, a tax on, on the productivity and my ability to do some of the other things. So although I think it's incredibly important, I do wish there were more avenues where we could have dedicated science communicators and have that a stream that we recognize is as important as like our teaching and our service and all these other things. So I do a lot. I do a lot for politicians and policymakers. I think it's really important, long research and infectious disease research has always been underfunded. And without that funding, we end up in situations like the COVID pandemic where we don't have good adult vaccination programs. You know, We've got lots of vaccine right now. We just can't get into the arms of people because we don't have the distribution. We've always been underfunded for science, uh, especially for adults and their health issues. Pneumonia has always been underfunded. So I feel passionately that it's my duty to explain what's important and to, to share that with policymakers, public taxpayers. But I also acknowledge that it shouldn't be an obligation for everyone because it's really hard and it's time-consuming. Um, but it's also very fulfilling. One of my one thing that was surprising is my my husband had said to me, "You know, people want to know your opinion on, on going back to school in September. You know, people are asking me, like all our friends and neighbors want to know." So so I made these little YouTube videos. Those YouTube videos have more views than every single one of my papers combined. <laughs> Those seen by people all over the world. I had people emailing me from other countries. I had teachers from across the country asking me questions like those videos were like the biggest thing I will probably ever do. And so it really to me was an eye-opener about how much people do want reliable, trustworthy information, but what they get is Facebook and all the crazy that's on there. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think it you can do it. It's important to do it, but it, again, it takes practice. Just like I said, you have to practice your spiel. You have to really practice which words people understand, which things they don't understand. You have to understand that most people can't read a graph in the way we do. You know, we, as scientists, read charts and data, and we can do this quickly. We can do it in the context of an oral presentation. We can. Most people can't do that in the same way, and so you have to learn how to make good visuals and cartoons and and be able to demonstrate things visually and so there's a balance between like simplifying so that the message gets across and keeping the accuracy there and I think scientists really bristle against that because we're used to scientific presentations where we want to talk about you know, which mouse you used and like you know in infinite detail and that's just not accessible to the broader public so there's a bit of a skill set there as well.
2: And I think that in the future, it's becoming more common to have, like you said, like science communicators as like a full time job. And it's going to be interesting how that kind of profession develops over time. I know that Instagram has a bunch of different really some science communicators with PhDs that have been kind of disseminating a bunch of knowledge about the vaccine and just everything about the pandemic. So it's been super great. But with that, I think we're gonna shift over to a little more about some of the more personal questions. And I think Dom is gonna lead that section.
3: Thanks, Anna. So now we're gonna be talking about some of your reflections on your postdoc and some future-based questions. So you've now taken us through your trajectory, through your bachelor's into your PhD and into your postdoc and running a successful lab. So what advice would you give to PhDs and postdocs who are currently thinking of establishing their own lab?
1: Well, I think if you want to run an academic lab, it's important not to lose, keep your eye on the prize, and the prize is publications. So it's a little bit difficult, especially because that's hard, <laughs> you know, like writing a paper and getting it published and seeing it through is super hard. So it's easy not to be a finisher. It's easy to be someone who starts a lot of projects but doesn't get them out. It's, you know, I have this problem myself is it's a lot easier to start things than it is to finish them. And, uh, you know, with all these other messages about like science communication, being important, teaching being important, all this other stuff, ultimately the quality and quantity of your publications is gonna dictate whether you are even considered for a faculty position or not. So that is super important. So I would say the goal should always to be, write as many top quality good. Solid papers as you possibly can. And a good way to do that in your PhD is to have a good supervisory committee and be in a good lab with lots of good people who can inspire you and help you and collaborate with you. And going to a postdoc where, you know, you're well funded. There's lots of good equipment there where you can dream it. You can do it kind of thing and get good publications there. So that is surprisingly often what people You know, they want to know about all the soft skills and they want to know all about this, that, and the other thing. But in truth, none of that matters if you don't have your publications or your gateway into an academic position. And so without them, there's no workaround. You can't be a super great science communicator and apply for a research-intensive position unless you have the research to back up. So that is what I would tell people to focus on is being a finisher. Don't just be a starter like me, be a finisher. And get those papers out there. So that'll be the really key thing. And then after that, you can finesse. You can think about soft skills or teaching skills or application skills.
3: Yeah, I think that's really some good advice. Just I think a lot of students can relate to that, where on something for quite a while, and then something new pops up, and then you get really excited about it and kind of forget or kind of abandon what you had been working on. So I think that's some really good advice. Also, I wanted to know a couple things about your future. So, what do you think are your next steps in your career? Do you see yourself really like branching into policy making or industry or things like that? Where do you see yourself going?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And the timing is very opportune. So I'm trying to make some career decisions myself. I think, you know, being a little trying to be a bit self aware, I knew i've known for years i never wanted to get into a heavy administration position i don't want to be the chair you know i don't want to have to deal with any of that i don't want that sort of thing but i would like to lead a larger research initiative that's bigger than my own lab and i'm not 100 percent sure what that would look like but i'd like to lead a larger research focus i'd like to stay in the field of respiratory infections and health but i'd like to also try to be outward looking you know i think sometimes in the academia, we can be sort of accused of being sort of inward looking and, you know, not looking to the bigger community. And so one of the commitments I've sort of made to myself in designing our own research studies is that I would like to reach out to more communities within Hamilton to be part of our research studies. So for our human studies, we often recruit people who live in and around the university community and things like that. And uh, it's harder for me to get people from other community groups you know people who live in uh, the wrong part of town or you know people who have never really even experienced a university and never been in a research study so one of my commitments to myself is that uh, in the next stage of our research recruitment we're going to try to be broader looking and more inclusive so that people from all across the city get to participate in our research and then we give back to them in the forms of sharing our research findings with them first and and speaking to their community groups or their clubs or their churches or their synagogues or wherever they go but yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I'd like to, I'd like to run a larger research institute, but I never want to have to worry about the budgets. You know, I never want to be the person who has to sit down I don't, I don't like any of that. So, so that's sort of next for me. I, I definitely will continue advocating for the health of older adults because I've seen such incredible ageism in the context of the COVID pandemic. People just being incredibly dismissive of people for being overweight or as if they deserved to get sick or being older, or for having a comorbidity. And I can't abide it. I can't, I can't, I just can't. So, so yeah, I still want to advocate for the importance of treating older adults uh, with respect and frankly, the research that they deserve to be healthy.
3: Yeah. Thanks for that. Like I could see throughout like just this interview, I could see your passion, especially for that demographic of people, which often they do get forgotten in research a lot of the times. And with COVID and everything happening, yeah, that's super important and it's super helpful. So for with the last question that we ask all of our guests, looking back at all of your training and looking back at all of your experiences, back to little Dawn, what advice would you give yourself when you first started?
1: Um, I don't know. It's hard to give myself advice because I feel like all my mistakes got me here. I, I, you know, there's so many mistakes, so many things I would have done differently. But, you know, part of that's the learning, right? Like you can't skip the screwing up. You can't, That's that's an important part of the development. So I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. And I would own and honor those mistakes for getting me where I was. I would congratulate myself on my excellent choice of husband. That's, I think, has been a uh, an incredible asset in my career and my happiness and my uh, ability to do the work I'm doing is having a supportive partner. So I think young Dawn should keep her eye out for uh, a young man she'll meet on her first day at the uh, University of Guelph and you know, keep open to that possibility. <laughs>
3: So we'd really like to thank you for taking out the time, for talking to us, for taking us down your career trajectory, your passions, your confidence, all of your different experiences. So we'd really like to thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for doing this and sharing immunology with the world. I think it's just the best field to be in, and I'm so glad you're bringing it out to the masses.
0: Welcome back everyone. We first want to thank you for staying until the end of the episode and then we also wanted to thank Dr. Dawn Boudish for taking time out of her schedule in order to talk with us and kind of share the origins of Ms. Macrophage, how the researcher came to be and how also the name came to be. We also really appreciated her take on the importance of science communication within the community and believe it is a very important thing for all scientists to keep in mind in their future endeavors. We just wanted to remind you that if you haven't already to follow us at Immunology and Beyond, on Twitter, as well as an Instagram to stay up to date with news related to the podcast. We also wanted to encourage you to consider following the McMaster Immunology Research Center Twitter account, as you can be kept up to date with all the research that's coming out of the center where myself, Anna, and Dom work at. And for you to follow that, just look up on Twitter at Mac Immunology. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.